Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. This is the Word of God. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Our Father, your promise to us is that your word does not return void. And we pray according to that promise this morning that this scripture would have its way in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, that we would yield to your Holy Spirit and his power for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. Many of you have seen the famous photograph from Times Square on August 14th, 1945. It was VJ Day when the Emperor of Japan surrendered to the United States and its allies, putting an end to the Second World War. The photo has been called the Kiss. A U.S. Navy sailor embracing and kissing a total stranger, a dental assistant in a white uniform. The photo is iconic because it captures the joy of that moment in our nation's history. After years of fighting and bloodshed, many loved ones sacrificed in battle, it was finally over, and the victory was exhilarating. James Johnson suggests there's something of that joy reflected in David's song of celebration and thanksgiving that we're going to look at today. After so many years of fighting and running, the Lord had given David victory, and the Lord had given him rest. And David looks back over his past and gives thanks to God in a song that he wrote. But first, a prelude to that song, if you want to follow along in the sermon outline in your bulletin, you're going to spend most of our time this morning in this song I mentioned in chapter 22, but before we go there, just for continuity and our series and the storyline of the shepherd king, I want to summarize very quickly and make comments on chapters 20 and 21. In chapter 20, we see more fallout from this split within the nation of Israel that we saw at the end of last week's passage. The northern tribes feel slighted by David and the tribe of Judah. So a man named Sheba leads a rebellion from these tribes against King David. <clears throat> David had replaced <clears throat> excuse me, David had replaced Joab as the commander of his army with a man named Amasa. Well, Amasa quickly dropped the ball. So David turned to Abishai, who was Joab's brother, to take care of Sheba's rebellion. Well, enter Joab. <laughs> 
Joab wants to remove any doubt that Amasa is no longer in charge, so he murders him. This is peak Joab. In fact, I'll be as graphic as one version of the inspired word of God is. Joab thrust a sword through Amasa's stomach so that his intestines spilled onto the ground. And I love how the author then adds these words. Joab did not strike him a second time, for he was dead. Are you sure? (laughs) My goodness. Well, this is on brand for Joab, as we know. We've already seen with his killing of Abner and then Absalom. So continuing, long story short, Sheba, the leader of this rebellion, is ultimately beheaded. So David appears to let Joab continue commanding his army, but we see a few chapters later, David did not forgive him for killing Amasa and for many other instances of unnecessary bloodshed against the will of the king. Chapter 21 brings more violence and war. But again, I want to get to chapter 22. So let me just make a couple of observations in these two chapters that will be relevant to David's song and also relevant later in our application to us. There are those like Sheba who outright rebel against the king's rule, and they will not be forgiven by the king. There are also those like Joab, who acknowledge the king's sovereignty, but do not do what he says. They pledge allegiance to the king's rule, but they do not follow his will. Instead, they live the way they want, and they also will not be forgiven by the king. We would do well to remember that with our king, Jesus Christ. It is not only those who outright rebel against him who will be judged, but also those who say they follow him but do not do what he says. So that is a prelude, as it were, to David's song in chapter 22. I should mention that you can also find these words in the 18th Psalm, almost verbatim. David writes this near the end of his life as sort of a a rearview look at his life with God, sort of a a saga of salvation. As we've considered together, it's been a great journey over the last several months from David's unlikely private anointing as a young boy by Samuel in Jesse's home and all that has transpired in this saga since with the Lord and so many near-death experiences. David is thankful and he writes this song. We'll go through this song section by section And then consider further how David's song applies to us. So please follow along in your own Bible. We're going to be in chapter 22 all morning. First, letter A, David's deliverer is incomparable. Let's consider these words that were read the first four verses of our scripture reading. So this is a song that David writes to the Lord. And the circumstances, it says in verse 1, is that David had been delivered from the hand of all his enemies, including Saul. Sort of an overarching deliverance he's thinking of. Look at how he describes the Lord here. Rock, fortress, refuge, shield, horn. These are all things from everyday life in Israel on which people rely when they're in distress. A rock or a rocky crag was a hideout that people often used. And David used, for instance, when being pursued by Saul and his men. In other words, the rock is a source of protection. Likewise, fortress is a structure that people build that keeps them safe from attackers. A shield also obviously protects you 
from arrows or other things that the enemy sends your way. The horn of a large animal is its weapon, the instrument of its power. David understands it was the Lord's power that delivered him. When people are in distress, they rely on strength. They're the high ground in battle, thick walls, places of refuge, better weapons, powerful allies. These are all good things and advantages people seek when under attack and distress. David has relied on the Lord like people rely on those other things. He would rather have the Lord than any other advantage in battle or any other protection. Think about the things that we rely on today to give us advantage in distress. What makes us feel safe? Money, right? A buffer of savings. Good health from exercise and diet to make you resilient against illness or injury. Relationships, business alliances that help us when we may need it. All these things are good, but today David might say, the Lord is my rainy day savings account. The Lord is my healthy body resistant to illness. The Lord is my network of key relationships I leverage when I need help. My way out, my way forward is through the Lord. I wonder, do you prize the Lord and rely on him like that? Verse five, for the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. David uses graphic imagery to illustrate the situations from which the Lord saved him. Waves that pull him underwater. I think of swimming as many of you have done in the ocean, getting swept underwater by the, the powerful waves and undercurrent. The, the cords of Sheol, the, the cords of death entangled me, pulling me down to death. I, th I think of that, that scene from Lord of the Rings with, with the barlog wrapping its flaming whip around Gandalf's legs, pulling him down. That's the depth of rescue that David realizes. He doesn't want to just merely tell us the facts about God's deliverance, in other words. But as Dale Davis says, he wants you to see God in all his saving fury. He doesn't intend to merely inform you about what God has done. He wants you to see the God who did it in all his dazzling splendor. David understands that only his cry of distress brought God to save him, and he did. Verse 8. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Just grasp this imagery. The whole earth is shaken by the Lord's rousing anger against his enemies. Verse 9, smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet, he rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. These images hearken back to the Exodus. Smoke from his nostrils, fire from his mouth, dark clouds and gathering water. I think it's, 
It's really instructive to see how David views his salvation in continuity with redemptive history. Okay, God's work in his own deliverance, he understands as part of the larger story of how God has delivered his people in the past. This is the same God doing the same things. When David read the story of the Exodus, it informed his own worship of the God who delivered him. This is how we should read the Bible, brothers and sisters. When we, we see these metaphors and exclamations here and in, and in the Psalms, you can rejoice and worship the same God who saves us. This God who delivered the Israelites from Pharaoh with a mighty hand is the same God you pray to about a difficult conversation you have to have at your job. This God who delivered David from the hand of Saul is the same God who helps you navigate relationship issues with your family. He delivers us time and time again. We are part of a much bigger story about a great God who delivers his people, and David understood that. He continues, verse 13. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. I love this. So in the Exodus... Egypt was too mighty, wasn't it, for Israel? But the Lord delighted in his people and rescued them and put them in the promised land. So it is with David and his deliverance. His enemies were too mighty for him. And the Lord delighted in him, rescued him, and brought him into a broad place. If you are in Christ this morning, do you know the Lord has delighted in you to save you? You had no chance against Satan. No chance against sin, against death. But the Lord delighted in you, he delivered you, and he will bring you into the broad place of his dwelling when he comes for you. You may recall Alan Kember's message at the end of 1 Samuel. He noted there that there are echoes of Hannah's song in some of David's praises, and we see that here. This thunder in heaven harkens back to Hannah's song at the beginning of 1 Samuel. In a sense, Hannah's prayer saved Israel. And Hannah's rock was David's rock. Hannah's deliverer was David's deliverer. And these images from her own song are repeated here throughout David's song. So these two songs, as it were, serve as sort of bookends to the collective books of Samuel. The rock and deliverer has been working and fighting through this entire drama from Hannah giving birth to Samuel, answering her prayer to the anointed king, to his deliverance and the announcement and establishment of his kingdom. David's deliverer is incomparable. 
Now let's consider letter B, that David's righteousness is important. Let's look at verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. Now, honestly, when we hear these words, it can make us uncomfortable, can it? I mean, how can he say the Lord dealt with him according to his own righteousness? How can he say he did not turn aside from the rules and statutes? How can he say he kept himself from guilt in light of Uriah the Hittite and Bathsheba? How different are these words from his words in Psalm 51? Well, we have to remember the different viewpoints from which he's writing. There is a viewpoint of standing before God in light of his sin, which no one can do. David understands that. He acknowledges that other places, and even in this song, he acknowledges that. But there's another viewpoint or perspective of general faithfulness to the Lord and his covenant. We see the same kind of thing in the Apostle Paul. In 2 Timothy Paul says he fought the good fight, he finished the course, he kept the faith. But he also wrote that he was the worst of sinners. In Philippians 3, he makes it clear it's not his own righteousness ultimately, but that of Christ that saves him. So David here is not claiming sinless perfection by any means. He's saying he's not turned his back on the Lord, he's been all in with Yahweh and the covenant. Especially in this context of his enemies pursuing him, which is the context that dominates the song. When Saul or other enemies pursued, he didn't waver, did he, from the Lord's instructions, and that's important. Bruce Waltke is helpful here as he talks about the concept of blamelessness in the Old Covenant. It's not perfect obedience with no failure. Okay, it had the connotation of integrity, wholeness. Okay, like you're all in, you're fully on board. The covenant, remember, not only had laws to follow, but also the sacrificial system, which was part and parcel with the law. Part of the premise behind the sacrifices was the fact that people couldn't obey the law perfectly. So are you all in with God's prescribed way of relating to him? Waltke illustrates this concept of blamelessness with with following doctor's orders. If you're taking the prescribed pills according to the regimen you've been given, and following what the doctor has prescribed to do, you could be said to be blameless in the way of the prescription. You believe and are committed to the path the doctor has laid out, not going down a different path. That's the idea here. David believed the Lord and was committed to his ways and his prescribed covenant. And that's important throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament. Remember our Hebrews study a couple of years ago, perhaps my favorite series we've done at Orchard profoundly impacted me personally. Well, Hebrews is clear, isn't it, that your obedience matters and your commitment to the Lord and to the covenant matters. And here with David, that personal righteousness we can see in this section is centered on God's word. This is this uh, stanza, as it were. It's a literary device called a chiasm, where you've got the first line and the last line that are parallel all the way down to the middle, 
which is sort of the center point, the rules and statutes of God before David. David's righteousness was produced by God and came from his word. This is the mainstream doctrine in the scriptures. Those who faithfully follow the Lord and esteem his word can expect the Lord's blessing. Those faithful to the Lord are in a covenant relationship with him as opposed to treating the Lord like a prostitute, which many do. They use him when they need him and forget him when they don't. They cry out to God in times of trouble, help, help, but forget him when they get what they want. That's the opposite of blamelessness. They're not all in with God. They don't have a covenant relationship with God. So it matters how you live in the bad times and in the good times, and that's how David lived his life with the Lord. Yet, of course, we cannot think about David's righteousness without thinking about the context and the backdrop of David of Bathsheba and Uriah. So we know that inherent in these statements is the Lord's mercy, and we see that next. Let's read in verse 28. You save a humble people. Your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. The Lord honors those who honor him, those who are humble, those who trust him. Okay, that's what it means that, that God is his lamp. He trusts the Lord. His source of light for guiding his way is the Lord and his word. David sought to honor God and trust him with his life. So David's righteousness is important. And finally, let us see David's kingdom is invincible. Starting in verse 32, I'm going to read about a dozen or so verses, but I just want you to notice as I'm reading how David switches between himself and the Lord in these statements. It's really instructive for how to understand this dynamic. Verse 32, for who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge. He has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of the deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend the bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them as fine as dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You see here that all that David has done, and he explains his victories with these images, all has been done by the Lord's power. You see that? I and you, mixed throughout, his and my. David's emphasizing God delivered him by granting him the strength to overcome his enemies. Verse 40, you equipped me with strength for the battle. 
But David acted. Do you see that? He acted throughout. He didn't sit back and watch God. He acted with the Lord's strength and achieved victory for his kingdom. Verse 44. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me, and as soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. David has become head of nations. This is an international kingdom. Other nations around have become subject to this king. This is a foreshadowing, isn't it, of of David's great descendant. This foreshadows that the scope of this kingdom goes far beyond Israel and Judah. It's a glimpse into the ultimate scope of the everlasting kingdom promised to his descendant back in chapter 7. We also see this in Psalm 72, a royal psalm about the king which will ultimately be fulfilled by King Jesus. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. This is the great hope we still look forward to today. The king reigning on earth, executing justice perfectly, every knee bowing to him. Verse 47, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. No doubt many of you like me remember singing this praise as a kid in the King James, of course. So shall I be saved from my enemies. The Lord liveth and blessed be the rock. May the God of my salvation be exalted. Verse 48, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out of, from my enemies, and ex- you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This is the covenant the Lord made with David. David and his offspring forever. This everlasting kingdom, this chesed, this steadfast love of the Lord. God's promise to David and his descendants forever. This thought of the invincible kingdom, again, bookends First and Second Samuel. Way back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah's song mirrors these thoughts. She sings, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. David now celebrates Hannah's song. His offspring, ultimately Jesus, wins in the future. And every knee shall bow to our invincible king. Listen more to more of Psalm 72. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from river from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring him gifts. May all the kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Listen to the prophet Zechariah. Rejoice, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Listen to these words. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This kingdom promise to David is invincible because the Lord is invincible. He promised it and he will do it. So that's David's song. Now let's consider further what does this mean for us this morning? It's sort of a postlude to David's song. What is our song? First, the Lord delivers, so let's thank him. Perhaps the most fundamental, overarching, practical lesson in this song is that David gives thanks to God for all the Lord has done in his life. Yahweh delivered David countless times from danger. And he delivered for David all that he needed. Thanksgiving is a prominent theme in in the Old and New Testaments. Of course, we as a nation celebrated the holiday of Thanksgiving a couple of weeks ago. And it's a a holiday that's, that's becoming increasingly a dilemma for many of our friends and neighbors because inherent in Thanksgiving is a person or being or someone to which you are thankful. You cannot thank nothing. You cannot give thanks to nobody. Well, for Bible-believing Christians, of course, we are giving thanks to God the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And it's not something we do once a year, is it? It's also not an optional add-on for the Christian life either. Giving thanks to God is fundamental to the identity of the believer. A true child of God is one who gives him thanks. Listen to Romans One, the Apostle Paul, speaking of unbelievers, says, although they knew God, in other words, they cannot deny his existence through the created world, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So acknowledging God as a source of good things and giving him thanks is essential to what it means to be a Christian, a key difference from an unbeliever. 2 Timothy 3, Paul lists serious vices that will mark the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful. Think of what the unbelieving generation of Israelites in the wilderness, what what characterized that generation? Despite the amazing works of God on their behalf, they slowly forgot her God. They murmured, didn't they? They grumbled. They fell into idolatry. Listen to the prophet Hosea. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. Waltke explains the Hebrew word forget does not pertain so much to a mental lapse as a moral lapse. We forget God and his word because we feel autonomous. We feel self-sufficient. We feel secure without God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that these things, like the story of the unbelieving generation in the Old Testament, serve as examples for us. He says, do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. So consider that these are inseparable, okay? Grumbling, pride, forgetting your dependence on God, not giving thanks, idolatry, unbelief. 
It's a chain of attitudes and actions that lead to unbelief, apostasy, leaving the faith. This is why Martin Luther said that ingratitude is the root of all evil. David Powell wrote wrote a great book on the subject of Thanksgiving, and he noted that even secular psychologists have acknowledged that ingratitude, not being thankful, is a sign of narcissism. So even in the world's way of thinking, there's a common grace understanding that we're different than animals. Okay, when a person is not able to acknowledge his or her need of others, it's a red flag. But the scripture goes much further, of course. Not acknowledging your dependence on the creator is a root of all sin. When you recognize your dependence on God, thanksgiving becomes a part of your life, doesn't it? It starts with salvation. Okay, David was delivered from his enemies. Our prominent enemies are Satan, sin, death. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, God offers salvation, deliverance from those enemies. This is for anyone who, like David, acknowledges their dependence on him and trusts him. If you've not done that, or if you're not doing that, please talk to me afterward. You can be delivered eternally through Jesus Christ. Consider our Lord's Supper. We believers gather every week at 9 a.m. to remember and celebrate our dependence on God. Among other things, it's a corporate act of thanksgiving. We're saying together to the Lord, we would be hopeless without him. We would be hopeless without Jesus and his work on the cross and his resurrection and ascension. We thank him every week corporately, and that honors him, which is paramount. But the Lord's Supper isn't just for him. It transforms us, and it keeps us from the lie that we don't need God. It keeps us from idolatry. It keeps us from unbelief. It keeps us from apostasy, from leaving the faith. Oh, how important for your eternal safety, brothers and sisters, is our regular corporate gathering for the Lord's Supper. Don't forsake it. And as you grow in the Lord, you're increasingly aware of that dependence, aren't you? For the Christian, salvation from sin and death is only the beginning of our realization of our dependence on him. Our entire lives are a footnote to the cross. We've been given spiritual life and discernment to see just how dependent on God we really are. Not just for salvation, but for our marriages, for our parenting, for our relationships, for our jobs, for our ministry, for our health, and our strength to sustain with bad health. For all the many deliverances we need daily, for every detail of our future, and for our very next breath. The Christian life is acknowledging that and giving thanks for the Lord's deliverance and provision. Think of how Jesus taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. This is a reminder that he provided for us yesterday. Thank you. And please provide for us today. The Israelites were instructed in the wilderness to only take as much manna as they needed for that day. God could have done it any way he wanted to. But the whole process was designed to remind them of their daily dependence on him so that they wouldn't forget 
And they could be thankful for the previous day and acknowledge his provision in the current day. So one more practical thing on this. I, we just had Thanksgiving, of course, but as a holiday. But, but another great time to acknowledge and thank the Lord is at the end of the year, which is obviously coming up. My family has done this from time to time, and, and preparing this message reminded me that we don't always do it, and, and we should. It's, it's a great thing to do. It's helpful to make this a regular thing. Between Christmas and, and New Year's and sort of that end of year season, get together with a friend, or if you have a family, think together and catalog all the blessings and deliverances and provisions you've experienced this last year. There are many. You know, the Israelites had many festivals as part of their annual calendar, and that really forced the issue. Okay, we don't have those things, so we need to be intentional to keep thanksgiving to the Lord as part of our routine, lest we forget our dependence on him, lest we slip into ungratefulness and idolatry and unbelief. So this is a way to put it as part of your end-of-year cycle. Have everyone think of things. Maybe write them down and share them over dinner. Put some preparation into it. Ask everyone maybe to think of a list of ten things to write down. Then share them and go through and thank the Lord for each of them. Practice thanksgiving for his faithfulness and his deliverance. David got to the end of his life, and he wrote this song. He's just struck by the Lord's faithfulness and how he's been delivered time and time again. And the reason is that he recounted how the Lord had done that. He'd been so faithful. He even used poetic imagery around those events, used his artistic, spirit-filled gifting to do that, tied it into redemptive history, really put some thought into it. So let's be intentional and deliberate like that in our thanksgiving so that we reflect this kind of spirit that's appropriate for a legitimate child of God. The Lord delivers, so let's thank him. Secondly, the Lord rules, so let's obey him. We saw that David's righteousness was unincidental. It was important. Just because he was completely dependent on God and recognized all power came from him, didn't mean he didn't act. Okay, it says he fought with the Lord's strength. He, David, did the fighting. He did it with the Lord's strength. He didn't let go and let God. He didn't say, oh, it's all God, so I'm not going to do anything. No, he went into battle confidently, fought valiantly because his strength came from the Lord. We see the same thing in the Apostle Paul. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Okay, no question there. He's, this is from the grace of God. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Or Philippians 3, Paul says he has a righteousness that's not his own, right? It's an alien righteousness that comes from, comes from Christ, depends on faith. So therefore, how I live doesn't matter because it's all God. No, it's not what he says. He says, in light of that truth, of that righteousness that I have in Christ, in light of that, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It matters how you live. David was all in 
with the Lord and how he related through the covenant. Does your life reflect an all-in commitment to Jesus and the new covenant? That doesn't mean sinless perfection. Okay, we've just considered we're completely dependent on him for our righteousness, for salvation. But if you're in Christ, Jesus purchased you with his blood. He redeemed you and now owns you. You belong to him. So you don't want to be like Joab where you pledge allegiance to the king, but don't do what he says. Is your life governed by his word? Okay, are, are you diligently seeking to obey his statutes? Do you find his instructions for life liberating or burdensome? Do you cherish his law? Do you cherish his instructions for life like a fortress of protection against death and hell and apostasy? Do you love his word as an antidote for the world's way of thinking? Do his words give you life? Or are you treating God like a prostitute, only calling on him when you need him and forgetting about him when you don't? That's not the new covenant relationship that true believers have. The Lord rules and we must obey him. In fact, we love doing so because we love him. And we know that he loves us. And he's, he loves us and he, he wants the best for us. And he only gives us instruction that leads to our flourishing. Finally, the Lord wins. So let's trust him. At the end of David's song, we see the invincibility of his kingdom. And in the nations submitting themselves to this king, we see a foreshadowing of the future reign of Jesus, the son of David. In Romans 15, Paul says this, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, meaning the Jews, Jesus came first to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, even promises to David. And in order that the Gentiles, the rest of us, might glorify God for his mercy. Okay, as it is written, Paul says, written in the song of David, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This invincible kingdom is much bigger than Israel and Judah. As was promised to Abraham, this blessing blesses people well beyond the Jews. Even I can be a part of this kingdom, and even you. And this king, of Je- this king Jesus came first, of course, to deal with sin through his cross. But when he comes again, he will eradicate evil and suffering entirely. And that's our great hope, isn't it? Our great hope is his invincible kingdom. So we can endure suffering now, brothers and sisters. We can, endure, we can have unanswered questions now. I have many. We can struggle with broken bodies now. We can endure exhausting relationships now. We can endure joblessness or difficult jobs now. We can endure frustrating governments and unjust societies now. We can endure loss of influence in our culture now because of that certain hope in this invincible kingdom 
to come. He promised David and he promises us. Despite how things may look in our culture, despite the trend of the world, make no mistake, Jesus wins. His kingdom is invincible. And he alone will bring it to pass with his power for his glory. So let's focus on our own obedience and let the Lord take care of the kingdom. One commentator recounts an incident in English history when after England's victory at the Battle of Agincourt in the 15th century, Henry V of England ordered the singing, the singing of Psalm 115. Henry prostrated himself on the ground and caused his whole army to do the same while the words pealed forth, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to thy name give glory. This invincible kingdom is not the result of our ability to convince people in our culture or to argue well. It's not the result of our ingenuity or strategy or power or coercion. We must confess for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory because only by his power this kingdom will come and it will, brothers and sisters. There's nothing that can stop him. He's invincible, so let's trust him. Please stand as we close. Our Father, we're so grateful for Jesus. We're so grateful for this invincible kingdom to come, and we pray you'd consummate this kingdom soon. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We pray that you give us the spirit to, the power of your spirit to obey you at all costs as your covenant people. And we thank you so much for the deliverances that you provide for us every day, especially the deliverance from eternal judgment through Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, for those here who do not understand what that means. They've not bent the knee and given their lives to Jesus. They've not received the righteousness available through the cross and resurrection. May they do so today. May they repent from their sin. May they turn away from their self-centeredness and their self-focus, and give everything to you, that they might be born again, for Jesus' sake. Amen.